First of all, I'd like to say thank you to all you people who worked so hard to lead us in worship. Uh, I especially appreciate it. I have no musical talent. If it's possible to have less than no, I have less than none. But you people play such an important role in, in uh, setting the stage for the Spirit of God. So that's a great worship service. Thank you so much. I, uh, of course, knew Jerry and Bonnie. Peg and I had the uh, privilege of being at their wedding in, in the previous building. And, uh, and Bonnie is dear to us. She's like a daughter. We love her. Uh, she, she lived with us for two years while she was going through Liberty University. So, so we love them, and we're so glad to be here to share things. As I've gotten to know your pastor, he's just just delightful personality. Uh, it, it may come as a surprise to you to know that your pastor and I uh, have some things in common beyond just the fact that we're in ministry. Um, we're both track men. Now, I'm a former trackman. He, he's, he still can run. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact uh, it's not well known, but I, I actually held a world record when I was uh, 18 years old in high school for what was then called a 220-yard dash. Um, it, it, uh, like everything in sports these days, however, there was an asterisk in front of the record. And the asterisk was that was for people with a 26-and-a-half-inch inseam. So, uh, I ran faster than any other living human being, but I just didn't get very far as I was running fast. <clears throat> it, uh, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to be here. This is a great church. If, if, if you open up a branch in uh, Lynchburg as well as Midlothian, uh, I think we'd be willing to attend to enjoy the music and to see such a, such a happy, dynamic uh, presence of God. So we're, we're really glad to be here with you. When I was inquiring about what time or what uh, subject area would I like to share with you, I had first thought that I would, I would highlight for you what is the plan of God that makes its way from Scripture from one end to the other. Because I think people don't really understand that. They don't really know how that works. But then I thought about trying to do that in the brevity of a sermon, and I realized, okay, that's a bit audacious, and I'm long past audaciousness. So I thought instead I would share something with you uh, along the line of uh, understanding the plan of God from a human perspective. Now, I understand you're real form informal, or you're more informal than the first hour. I'm not sure what that means for me, but... Um, I would love for us to think about God in this hour. You know, <clears throat> I do know a lot. I read a dozen different languages. Um, I've taught so many courses I have trouble even remembering what I've taught. Certainly don't remember the contents of what I taught. I know a lot. But I still think the same way you think. When things happen to me, I tend to interpret them on the basis of whether I like them or don't. And like you, I tend to interpret them, if it seems to be bad, I blame it on Satan. And of course, if it seems to be good, I give God the credit. The trouble with that reasoning is it assumes that I know what God is doing. And in fact, the point of this sermon is to challenge us to think about the fact that God is working all the time, 
and, and amazingly uses all events to further his plan. So we really need to be challenged to realize that no matter what happens, our God is using everything. He uses not all just all the righteous acts of human beings, but he uses the wicked acts as well. Now, I don't know how he does that. Back in 1993, uh, I had taught for 20 years at a graduate school, and in 1993, the school had gone from 550 students to less than 30. And in 1993, they simply dismissed their faculty. That was not happy for me. But as I got through that, I ended up at Liberty University, and I have experienced happiness and joy and ministry. God was just as much God in 1993 as he was in 1998 when I came to this school. So the purpose of this sermon is a, a, a gentle reminder that in the midst of living our lives, it's a gentle reminder, friends, we are the children of a God who we understand only imperfectly on this side of glory. We don't know what he's doing, do we? So... I'd like to talk with you about a tale of three kings. Someone wrote a book similar to that title. A tale of three kings. If we try to understand God from what he does in the presence of people in the Bible, it can be confusing. Let me talk to you about a king who was particularly wicked, Ahab. I have not known many mothers who named their children Ahab. Um, and the reason for it is because Ahab was a really wicked guy. He, 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 uh, he excelled in wickedness. It's lesser known in the congregations of America, it's lesser known that he was one of the most successful, courageous kings in the entire ancient world. He ruled a country that from north to south only ran 100 miles. 100 miles. Pretty small. And yet this king was so successful, he put together an alliance that successfully defeated the world's first hyperpower. And he defeated them repeatedly. He was magnificent. As a matter of fact, the problem that Ahab had is he thought he was magnificent. And he began to lose perspective like anybody with power does. And he saw himself as sort of above God. Well, one day in Ahab's life, he was getting ready to go into battle. And like all ancient kings, he needed to have someone from the religious world tell him whether he was going to succeed or not. So he called together 400 prophets. And he asked them to inquire whether he would be successful when he went up to battle. And 400 prophets, preachers for hire, 400 of them all gave him the message he wanted to hear. Go up, you're going to win. He was, happened to be in alliance with the king of Judah, whose name was Jehoshaphat. 
And Jehoshaphat looked at him and said, Ahab, don't you have a prophet of the Lord around here? Ahab said, I've got one, but I really don't like him. Jehoshaphat said to him, well, what's the problem? He says, because every time I talk with him, he gives me bad news. Well, Jehoshaphat said, I would really like to hear from this prophet. So they bring in the prophet, and the prophet is asked the question, should we go up to battle? Will we win? The prophet, whose name was Micaiah, rather flippantly, apparently, said to Ahab, go up, you're going to win. Well, Ahab could tell that this wasn't sincere prophecy. <laughs> and so Ahab says, how many times do I have to tell you the, to tell me the truth? Micaiah looks at him and says, you want the truth? You're going to die. Well, Ahab was strange in the sense that he did in his heart believe in God. But he could never translate that into faith. So, Abraham, so Ahab knew there was some truth to this. So he goes into battle dressed like an ordinary chariot commander. Whereas he got Jehoshaphat, who must have been 10 bricks shy of a full load, he gets him to go into battle dressed up in royal purple and gold apparel. Well, naturally, the enemy's forces start honing in on Jehoshaphat, but in the middle of the battle, some charioteer in the opposing army, at random, draws his sword, excuse me, draws his bow, and he just aims in the general direction, and he fires his arrow, and almost like, in modern terms, almost like it was a laser-driven arrow. The arrow just flies through the air and comes in the direction of Ahab and hits a small part of his torso that isn't protected. And there he bleeds to death in his chariot. Well, that's the kind of story we like in Sunday school, right? Ahab gets the point. Um, <clears throat> And you know, the way we like to do it in Christian, in Christian parlees is we like to say, and the good guys rode off into the sunset and live happily ever after. And as they say with my beloved Chicago Cubs, Cubs win. <clears throat> the problem is that that isn't the only way God worked with a wicked king. If we went to another king in 2 Kings, his name was Manasseh. This king, if possible, was even more wicked than Ahab. And I wish we had time to look at the biblical text and you could just read what it says about King Manasseh because he was perhaps in a class by himself. If it wasn't bad enough to do this, like Ahab, he did this, which was even worse than Ahab. Well, that's troubling, because why didn't God just send one of those laser-driven missiles and take him out? And worst, worst of all was the theologically difficult problem. This king ruled longer than any other king in Judah or Israel, 55 years. 55 years to do bad things. 
You know, when you hear that and you look at it, you think, this is troubling. Why would God let such a wicked man rule for 55 years? Now, you perhaps may think I have an answer to that question. I don't have the faintest idea. And perhaps it's even more troubling for us to look at the third king. His, his name is Josiah. Now, Josiah actually exists as a name today. I have a student in my honors class. He sits right in the front row, bright young man. His name is Josiah. Josiah took the throne as a very young, as a young boy. And during his kingship, they found what's called the Book of the Law. In the reigns of wicked kings, it turns out that substantial parts of God's word in the Old Testament had actually just been lost. And they find the book of the law, and they have that book of the law read, and it just exploded within Josiah's heart. Josiah created the greatest revival that any king could effect in his reign. He eradicated all of the idolatry in the entire country of Judah. He was so zealous that he had the, the bones of false priests and prophets dug up and burned. This king was the exquisite model for doing everything right. Like Ahab, he went into battle against the Egyptians, hardly people of God. And there, like Ahab, this godly king, barely 30 years of age, was killed in battle. And the entire plan of God seemed like it went south. Now, you know, friends, <clears throat> it must have been hard for them, as ordinary people just like us, to figure out what on earth, literally, is God doing? It's wonderful when he judges a wicked king. It's shocking when a wicked king gets to rule longer than anyone else. And it's really dissettling, disturbing, troubling when a godly king scarcely warms the throne before he's killed. This is, of course, troubling, and it ought to be troubling. It, you know, our, the point of what we're trying to do is not to tell you don't think about it, but to think about it. What is a person of faith to do when God doesn't seem to be consistent, when he doesn't seem to be in control? What's a person of faith to do? You know, Jesus... Jesus had to deal with the same question. What happens when God doesn't seem to make sense? One of my favorite New Testament books is the Gospel of Luke. And uh, if you would like to turn to it, you could turn to Luke chapter 4. And in this interesting passage, it's one of the most crucial passages in Luke-Acts. It's one of the most crucial passages because... Our Lord in Luke 4 announces in his hometown 
he announces that he's the Messiah. And, you know, you'd think that something like this would be met with kind of like what you said with, with Jerry. No, no applause, no, just silence. Uh, well, when Jesus announced that he was the king, there was not a wellspring of excitement. And they looked at Jesus, and all of them had seen him growing up in Nazareth. They all knew about this young man that they had seen, and their response was, isn't this the son of Joseph? And in order for them to get God to perform like they wanted God to do, they said to Jesus, you do the miracles here in Nazareth that you did in Capernaum. We heard about your miracles there. If you're really the Messiah, you do them here. Now, you know, they were doing something that many of us do, maybe almost all of us do this in the course of our lifetimes. We're troubled, we're kind of shaken, maybe we've got some doubt, and so we want God to perform in ways that make us feel safe, comfortable, even happy. Jesus, however, was not with the program. Jesus said something that made them very, very angry. When they demanded that the Messiah do miracles in their presence, Jesus said to them this, Truly I say to you, verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I know that's true. Uh, my mother never regarded me as a scholar. My mother never regarded me as an authority. I was just always little Donnie who gave her lots of trouble. <laughs> but Jesus responds to them in, in the next verse, in verse 25, In truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and a half years, and a great famine came over all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, save the one. Well, of course, what Jesus was saying to them is the great prophet did just one miracle, and that was in that one place, and he didn't do any other feeding miracles, and so I'm not going to do one for you. Secondly, he tells the story that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, but none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And so I'm not going to heal any lepers here today. Well, when they heard this, they were angry. And they were so mad, they were so furious that the crowd rushed upon him and sort of in the mass of this humanity was pushing him toward a cliff and they were going to kill him. And so in the midst of that, Jesus somehow reversed the flow of, of the traffic, passed through their midst and left them and went on. 
Now, you know, we have a story here, like a lot of the Bible stories, we have a story here for all of us that's not particularly obvious. And the story is that God doesn't do things at our command. God doesn't do things that seem right and just to us. <clears throat> that God is every bit as much God when he seems to do nothing as he is when he does something spectacular. As a matter of fact, it is perhaps when God is doing ordinary things that he's doing his most God thing. Trouble is, that's not splashy. That's, that's not exciting. That, that, and it's especially troubling when we need him to do a God thing. And so it's so easy for those of us who believe in God to be shaken when God doesn't do something. When, when we have a need, or we think we have a need, and we want God to do something spectacular, we can be shattered. We can experience doubt. We can be angry. And you know what? I think that's normal. You know, when you read the Psalms, you, you read the response of people who are troubled at what God isn't doing. You read people who say to God, how long will this go on? You read people who perhaps on some level are even angry with God. So when we're trying to relate with this God who we can't see, and while I think I clearly could feel his presence this morning, when difficult things come upon us and he's silent or seemingly silent, who among us is not shaken? So as we get ready to deal in our short time with this subject, short is such a harsh word, um, I prefer the term under tall. <laughs> Dear friends, here's one of the things that I would like to share with you that I think is a powerful thing for us to focus on, and that is I am never going to understand why God does what he does and why he doesn't do what I would like him to do. I'm never going to understand that. But what I would invite you to do is to take time to register this thought and put it in your belief bank and then go draw out the money when you need it. And the belief bank is this. In spite of everything that seems real, God does have a plan. 
I do not understand everything about that plan, but he does have a plan. And so when Jesus comes and Jesus says to them, I am the Messiah, and they say, prove it, Jesus chose not to do that in spite of the fact that it would just confirm his identity. That's mysterious. Why didn't you just do something spectacular there at Nazareth and they would have all fallen down and acknowledged that you are the Messiah and maybe even recognize that you are the Messiah God? Why didn't he do that? Well, don't ask. I haven't the faintest idea. What I do know is this, that as Christ was unfolding his presence on this earth, he was simply unfolding God's greater plan, and parts of his plan could be understood by human beings in the time of Christ, and parts of, parts of it just couldn't. God has a plan. And when that time comes upon us, we can believe, you know, we can look at the event unfolding before us, and we can be doubters. It's very easy to do. Or we can look at it and say that I trust that God has a plan, and though it doesn't make sense to me right now, I'm going to wait. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. In 1993, I could not have, in my wildest imaginations, I could not have seen myself at a little school of 30 people addressing in convo 10,000 people. I could not have seen the effect of teaching hundreds of students in a class instead of 15 students. I could not have seen the scores of people who came to know Christ through this ministry here. All I could see was pain and fear. But believing that God has a plan has something that's become part of my being. Let me tell you a deeply personal story. Eight years ago, nine years ago now, I was sitting in my office, and the phone rang. It was my doctor. He said to me, I want you in my office immediately. That didn't sound like that was good news. I went to the office. The doctor said to me, call your wife. So I called my wife. And I said, I'm in the doctor's office. He wants to do surgery immediately. I didn't have the faintest idea, but I was in acute renal failure. He did a surgery to stop a blockage that was bringing about the renal failure Came about, came about that with no symptoms or signs, my kidneys were being poisoned, and out of nowhere, I had to face the reality that I was probably going to die. 
that just didn't seem the appropriate moment to have somebody pass me a track that said, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, the story ended up far better than I could have ever dreamed because as it turned out, my kidneys ended up regenerating and I run today on about 40% function. But for this nine years, I've been privileged by God to continue to serve him. Let me tell you how much I believe in God's plan. When the doctor announced that to me, and for the next year and a half, I watched my kidney numbers decline, I hope this doesn't sound impious to you. I never once asked God to heal me. Never asked once anything of God. I so believe that he is God of my life that I just accepted it and continued to do whatever I could do in that day that's ahead. I really believe that I'm a part of a plan that is so large that I can't see it, but I really do believe in it. And I'd sure invite you to somehow join with me in believing that plan. Because it's real. God has a plan. And even though this crazy world that we're living in today looks like it's just spinning out of control, in the midst of the spin, God is doing his plan perfectly. And somehow, whatever is going to happen in the future, if it's five years from now and we're together, I can look back at you and smile and say, see, God has a plan. He's working it out. Now, let's say another thing about the plan of God to be honest with. It's troubling. When the doctor told me that bad, bad news, and then when I got bad news for a year and a half, I wasn't smiling. And I wasn't announcing to my world that, you know, I'm probably dying. God's plan can be troubling. I had spent so many years training and so many years trying to serve, it just seemed so unfair that God would take somebody highly trained and just press the exit button. It's troubling. And even someone as great as John the Baptist was troubled. Here's a man given perhaps as great a privilege as a human being can have, he announces the Messiah to his world and then is privileged to baptize him. Oh, my goodness. But a funny thing happened on the way to the kingdom. Another king, then Jesus, arrested him, put him in jail. And the Baptists seemed to figure out that he wasn't going to get out of this jail. And the Baptist was so troubled by his understanding of things unfolding that he contacted his disciples and he ordered them to go to Jesus and say to Jesus, are you sure you're the Messiah? 
perhaps we should expect someone else. And Jesus just sent Baptist a message in which he said, no. He said, I have come to heal the blind, to enable the deaf to hear, to raise the dead. For the present, for the present in the plan of God, wicked men are ruling. And as you know the story, the Baptist was killed. The plan of God really can be troubling to us as human beings, especially if it looks to us like evil is triumphing, especially if it looks to us like, how can God be God and let this happen? Those are things that trouble every one of us as we think about relating by faith to a God who claims that he's in control, those are, those are troubling things. But I would like to just leave with you a thought about the plan. It is properly mysterious. Who am I when my lifespan, you know, is short? Who am I to tell God how to run his universe? Who am I to say to the potter, you need to redo this? So in reality, while the plan of God can be troubling, while the plan of God can be troubling to all of us because we can't see it, because it's mysterious, and it doesn't seem to fit the way we think things should work. The greatest privilege imaginable is to be a born-again Christian and have our part in the plan. That's breathtaking. Who am I that I should have a part in the plan of God? When I look at what God is unfolding before us, I'm just somebody who grew up poor in Peoria. Who am I that I should have a plan in the unfolding of God's work on this earth? And who am I that I should share the gospel with anybody? I think one of the problems that Americans in particular have is we interpret things through our own lens. My friend, uh, I have... We're about out of time, aren't we? You know, if I was adding a verse to the Bible, the verse that I would be adding is, the lack of time is the root of every kind of evil. <laughs> Jesus was a master of communication because he illustrated. I'm not really very good at that. But here's an illustration I'd like to share with you as you think about living out your life in Christ and even more so if you're not in Christ. If we thought of ourselves as just a thread, I don't sew, but if we thought ourselves as just a piece of thread, you know, a piece of thread is pretty insignificant, isn't it? It's easily broken, doesn't have any beauty. It, it doesn't even really have a shape. It just, you know. 
But the amazing thing about being a thread is that we have got a master tailor. And he is weaving countless threads into a tapestry that we really can't see. When I'm being woven into this, all I see is threads on the right and threads on the left and darkness everywhere. I can't really see what's being made. But the amazing things, my dear friend, the amazing thing is that God the tailor is sewing us into a garment of unimaginable beauty. If we could just see that garment now, all of us would easily find the power to believe when unbelief is more natural. What I would like to suggest to you is what happens to me on this earth is relatively insignificant compared to a garment that I have the privilege of being a part of. Believe in something greater than yourself. You know, for those of us who believe in Christ, we can accept the fact that God is weaving us in ways that are sometimes painful. But here's what I would like to suggest. If you are here with us this August and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I invite you to believe in something far greater than just your own life. I, I invite you to believe in something even perhaps greater than the cross because the cross provides salvation, but there's more to just the cross of Christ because it is a cross that leads into the lives of every one of us on this earth every day. Jesus died that he might live, and he's living in every one of us and I invite you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, dear friend, I invite you to believe in something far greater than the life you're living. A life in which you are so special that somehow the garment would look just a little unfinished without you. And I invite you to come forward and let us show you, let the pastoral staff show you that how you can become part of something that reaches to the beginning and to the end. And you and I can be a part of something truly wonderful. Perhaps you're here and you've been rattled because of some event in your life. Easy, easily done. Perhaps you would like to come forward and say, I just want to pray here and remind myself by the power of God that whatever happens to me is somehow within the plan of God. And I want to have the faith to say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Like you, I believe that. Like you, I say to myself, help my unbelief. Let's, say, let's ask God at this very moment to do a work of belief in all of our hearts. Father, help us to trust that there's only one car and you're the only driver. All the rest of us in this life are just passengers. Help us to believe that you lead us through storms and you lead us through parks. You lead us through beautiful places but in the end, we're going somewhere.
Help us to believe that as you drive this car we call life, that you are guiding every step of our journey and that you are taking us to a place that is truly worth dying for. You're taking us to a place for which suffering means little. So beautiful is this place. Would you do a work in our hearts this hour through your spirit? Would you soften hard hearts? Would you give life where death seems to have occurred? And would you help us to trust and believe? We have a plan, and Jesus is driving that plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.